Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me well? Good. I'm so glad to have Carol Meeks here today. Carol, it's a joy to see you. She's really been fighting a battle in her health, and we're so grateful that she's here. Two weeks ago, I had the uh, privilege of attending a uh, luncheon slash workshop seminar at Brookhaven Hospital um, at about 13th and Garnett. And the speaker was a man named Ken Farnham, and he is the head chaplain at the Tulsa County Jail. And he spoke on the subject, preparing for a crisis of faith, uh, because he encounters a lot of men at the jail who are experiencing a crisis of faith. Uh, Here's the description of that workshop. This presentation will explore the idea that crisis is inevitable and how we respond is a choice. When the crisis comes, we can collapse or conquer. The choice and outcome are determined by our preparation for the crisis. Those events that do not fit into our worldview can shake the foundation of our faith if we are not prepared. So you see that he makes a point that um, we will face crisis. I think the chances of any of us getting through our lives without facing a very serious crisis is very small. And uh, he also makes the point that whether we collapse or conquer depends on how we prepare. Makes sense. Um, In um, seminary, we had a little chapel in um, in the graduate resource center. It was this little, it looked like a tiny little Methodist chapel. And we had a class called Practice Preaching. And um, you, each of us would get up and, and, and give a sermon, and the other students had an evaluation form about how well prepared was he, how, um, how were the illustrations, were the points effective, was there a clear outline, and so on and so on. And uh, you were videotaped, you were audiotaped, then you were given a copy of your video, you were given a copy of the other student's evaluation, of your uh, preaching. It was kind of a scary, a scary thing. But I remember one African brother getting up, and we're all there poised with our pencils, you know, ready to, to critique him. And he said he was going to speak on the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples of all the nations. So he may have read the verse, I don't know if he did or not, but then he paused for a long time and looked at us very, with a very pregnant pause, and he said, go. Then he waited an interminably long time, and then he said, go. And then he got really serious, and he bent over the, the lectern, and he said, Go! And then he sat down. And uh, all of us were there with our pencils looking at that first 
section, how well did he prepare? And it was just one of those really moments, you know, you just didn't quite know what to do. You thought, well, maybe he spent all night praying and fasting, and he was more concerned about our souls than the assignment. But at any rate, I don't think he did too well on that, on that uh, particular, particular time. We have to be prepared. Chaplain Farnham's outline at this message, he had three points. First of all, he said, we've got to understand verses in their context. We can't take verses out of context if we're going to be prepared for crisis. He said, also, we need to maintain an eternal perspective. That's something we've preached on here before, isn't it? Maintain an eternal, pers- an eternal perspective. He said, we have to develop a theology of suffering. Our theology has to be big enough to incorporate the reality of suffering. And then I'd like to add one final point. Um, I think that we are best prepared for crisis if when we're not in crisis, we are walking in worship and prayer and joy. And I'll make a case for that at the end. The title, so I'm going to borrow his title this morning. It's going to be called Preparing for a Crisis of Faith. And the text that comes to my mind as I think about this is John 16:33. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So how can we best prepare for crisis? Let's take each of these points in turn. First, understand verses in their context. Uh, Chaplain Ken talked about men in jail citing verses out of context. Um, Sitting there in jail saying, aren't I supposed to be receiving a hundredfold in this life? And yet here I am in jail. Another might say, are not blessings to be pressed down, shaken together, and running over into my lap. And here I sit in jail. Another one he hears is, aren't all things supposed to work together for my good? And here I am in jail. There's a uh, book that I became aware of recently by a man named Eric Bergerhoff, and he takes on this notion of quoting verses out of context. The title of his book is The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And one of the, in chapter 3, he picks on Jeremiah 29, 11. How many of you know that verse? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And he tells a story about being a small boy at church camp. And his particular church camp was in Shipshawana, Indiana. How many of you have been to Shipshawana? I know Jim has. Uh, it's an Amish area in Indiana, and he, he loved going to church camp. And on the way home in the car, they all received a, a picture of all their friends and campers. And on the back, campers would write uh, a brief uh, friendly greeting and then uh, something they called a life verse, a life verse. And 
And uh, the author talks about how it was here at church camp that he came to understand that he could have a life verse. And so he chose Jeremiah 29, 11. And I'd like to just uh, read a few excerpts from his chapter to give you a flavor of what he's thinking about that verse. He said, what a great verse to pull out of the Bible and use as my own. It was easy to memorize, not too difficult to understand, a powerful message, a great promise. What's not to like about it? Prosperity, protection, hope for a great future. These are all things that any Christian would want to see become a reality in his or her life. It seemed to echo the American dream with God's endorsement behind it. It quickly and conveniently became not only my life verse, but my subconscious expectation for how I thought God intended to bless my life right here and now. Just as long as I did what he wanted, as long as I committed myself to seek after him with all my heart. But the question is, is this an appropriate use of this verse to put God on the hook for a life of prosperity and blessing that fits my timeline and my definition? The answer lies in a closer look at the context of the verse. Then he goes on to say that this was a time in biblical history of of great despair for the Israelites. Life was anything but rosy. Their kings and spiritual leaders were filled with corruption. The people themselves had disobeyed God's commands and had intermarried with some of the surrounding pagan tribes who had led them astray to worship other so-called gods. They had compromised their character and broken the covenant that God had made with them through Moses. And now God had had enough. Though there were a few faithful among them, the people as a whole had turned their backs on him And as was often the case when this sort of thing happened, God would raise up a prophet. And so he raises up Jeremiah. But this prophet has a daunting task, doesn't he? To proclaim judgment and wrath upon the people of God. They were to be conquered by their enemies and carried off into exile for a very long time, 70 years as a matter of fact. And Jeremiah was charged with delivering this message. It was a devastating word. To be sure, the majority of people wouldn't survive long, and the rest would have to endure slavery in a foreign land, displaced from their homes for the remainder of their lives. Even the faithful ones amongst God's people would go into exile. So you're getting the picture here, the context of that verse. And then Jeremiah wants to encourage the people, or the Lord does through him, and so that's when the verse Uh, Jeremiah prophesies that um, they will be able to return to their land, but it will be after 70 years. So let me jump ahead to uh, some facts. Then he points out that this prophecy is, is not made to an individual, but it's made to a nation. It's and a specific nation, the nation of Israel. He goes on to say it's, it's not about an individual, it's about a community of faith. And he goes on to say that those who received that prophecy would have to endure 70 years of slavery before any of them possibly would see it fulfilled 
So again, he asks, is this an appropriate use of a verse to kind of see it through an American dream kind of lens, that God will prosper me in this life, that he will bless me, he will give me smooth sailing? And of course, the answer is no. I remember ministering at the City of Faith um, as a chaplain to a family where a young girl, I think she was 11 or 12 years old, uh, had cancer in her leg and they had to amputate the leg at her hip. And so I went in to minister to the family. And uh, pretty soon they asked me to leave because um, I must have asked about what their plans were um, to, you know, in the future. Were they going to get a prosthetic leg for the girl and that kind of thing? Just attempting to minister and be pastoral. But this family was in a crisis of faith. Um, they, this, this, this was outside their worldview because to them, this, this kind of thing just wasn't supposed to happen. And um, since that time, I've learned that while God can and often does call into being that which doesn't exist, according to Romans 4.17, it's presumption on our part to try to call out of existence things that do exist. Amen? It's presumption on our part. And this family was not wanting to deal with the reality that their daughter's leg was no longer there. God was going to grow her a new one. That was their position. And they didn't want any um, thinking in between time. The world has a saying, uh, and that is just deal with it. And uh, there's a certain place for that in our faith as well. We must deal with reality. Dr. Charles Farah used to say, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And uh, how true that is. We must understand verses in their context. So a second way to prepare is to maintain an eternal perspective. First, we want to we understand as best we can verses in their context. Secondly, we want to maintain an eternal, an, an eternal perspective. How many of you enjoyed the uh, African song that we sang last Sunday um, about some of the words were, um, Jesus is alive, he is mine, he is eternal. Jesus is alive, he is mine, he is eternal. Well, apparently, um, my little granddaughter, Risa, who's six, uh, looked up at her mother and said, Jesus is a turtle? You know, something wasn't making sense to her. And uh, if, we, if we get our eyes too far off the eternal, things start to not make sense to us much in this life. The Apostle Paul was extremely mindful of eternity, wasn't he? Remember some of the, some of the great uh, pieces of Scripture that he wrote? He said in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, what? We are of all men most to be pitied. If we're only looking at this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 is a beautiful passage on eternity. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, so beyond all comparison, or far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then in 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul wrote to Timothy, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. The Greek word there is epilambonomai, which means to lay hold of, to seize upon, to hold tightly. One little boy knew the value of eternity. He was in a classroom where the teacher asked the class of students, what would you wish for if you had one wish? One enthusiastic student shouted out, I would wish for a big house for my family and myself. Another student proudly stood up and said, I would wish for lots of land to plant an orchard and export fruits. A third student, unable to contain himself, declared, Sir, give me the latest automobile. Then a young chap stood up as if he possessed all the wisdom of Solomon and said, Sir, I would ask for a million, million dollars or more. You see, with that I could buy the house, the orchard, and the latest automobile. The teacher then called upon a shy student sitting quietly in the back, trying to avoid attention, and asked, And what would you wish for? The shy student stood up timidly and whispered, Sir, I would ask for an eternity of time, for with that I could make the money to buy the house, the land, and the automobile, and live long enough to enjoy them. This young boy had a bad case of sickle cell. He knew he had limited time. He knew the true value of time. There's another story about a, an athlete. He was a big, strong man. He was all muscle. But at the age of 32, he was 6 feet 2 inches tall and weighed only 80 pounds. He had been to seminary, worked with a fellowship of Christian athletes, but he was diagnosed with cancer. It racked his body, and over a period of time, he dropped from 200 to 80 pounds. When he was about ready to pass from this life to eternity, he asked his father to come into the hospital room. Lying there in bed, he looked up at his father and said, Dad, do you remember when I was a little boy how you used to hold me in your arm close to your chest? His father nodded. The young man said, do you think, Dad, you could do that one more time, one last time? And so his father bent down to pick up his 32-year-old, 6-foot-2, 2-inch, 80-pound son and held him close to his chest so that the son's face was right next to his own. They were eyeball to eyeball. Tears were streaming down both faces. And the son said to his father, thank you, Dad, for building the kind of character into my life that can enable me to face even a a moment 
like this. Bergerhoff concludes his thoughts on Jeremiah 29.11 with these words. The richest and greatest fulfillment of this prophecy is to be realized in a spiritual way. This promise ought to bring a great sense of joy to the believer who longs for the future hope of experiencing eternal life with God, a restoration that will be experienced in the fullest sense. My immediate American dream could not be sustained by these verses. Friends, in the end, we should never be looking and living for our own glory in this life. Instead, we should be living for God's glory now and waiting for the glory that will be received from him in the life to come. The Bible says we should consider ourselves as aliens and pilgrims or strangers in this world. God will fulfill his promises, yes, but not all of his promises were meant to be fulfilled in this life. And we cannot twist scripture around in order to make that happen. We have to live by faith. I know that's your heart this morning as I read this to you. Let's hold tightly to an eternal perspective. Amen? And then Chaplain Farnham went on to make his third point about making room for a theology of suffering. I was mentioning this to Hallett. And he said that John Piper has written extensively on this subject and written so eloquently that you, when you're done reading, you almost want to suffer. Oh, please, can I, Hallett said, was his response to, the, to Piper's message. But I think of Job chapter 2 a lot. Let me just turn there and read to you, picking up in verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I love that, that sentiment in Job, that I'm going to accept adversity along with the goodness of the Lord, and I'm going to worship God in the midst of it. In Philippians 1:29, we read another great verse about suffering. I think I could recite it, but I want to get it just right for you. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So we suffer not only in terms of life's adversity, but there is this mystery of entering into Christ's suffering, fulfilling his suffering in this present day. And that's a, that's a real mystery. John Newton, the 
former slave trader who came to Christ uh, had a friend apparently named Mrs. H. And this is a portion of a letter that he wrote to her when he learned she was suffering. He said, long and often I have thought of writing to you. Now the time has come. May the Lord help me to send a word in season. I know not, not how it may be with you, but he does, and to him I look to direct my thoughts. I suppose you are still in the school of the cross, learning the happy art of extracting real good out of seeming evil and to grow tall by stooping. The flesh is a sad dunce in this school, but grace makes the spirit willing to learn by suffering. Yea, it cares not what it endures, so sin may be mortified, and a conformity to the image of Jesus be increased. Isn't that beautiful? A conformity to the image of Jesus be increased. Surely when we see the most and best of the Lord's children so often in heaviness, and we can, when we consider how much he loves them and what he has done and prepared for them, we may take it for granted that there is a need be for their sufferings. For it would be easy to his power and not a thousandth part of what his love intends to do for them should he make their whole life here from the hour of their conversion to their death a continued course of satisfaction and comfort without anything to distress them from within or without. But were it so, should we not miss many advantages? In the first place, we should not then be very conformable to our head, nor be able to say, as he was, so are we in this world. Isn't that an interesting sentiment? Newton saying, we want to be as he was in this world. Methinks a believer would be ashamed to be so utterly unlike his Lord. What? The master always a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and the servant always happy and full of comfort. Jesus despised, reproached, neglected, opposed, and betrayed, and his people admired and caressed. He living in the want of all things, and they filled with abundance. He sweating blood for anguish, and they strangers to distress. How unsuitable would these things be? How much better to be called to the honor of experiencing a measure of his sufferings. You know, there are many kinds of sufferings, obviously. Adversity, persecution, grieving, loss, attacks of the enemy, fighting, our flesh, the testing of the Lord, prodigal family members, sickness, death, it goes on and on. One little revelation I've just kind of been pondering lately, and that is that indeed it must be so, because every aspect of creation has been infected by sin. Every single aspect of creation has been infected by sin and by the fall. We can't escape it in ourselves, in others, in political systems, in governments, in our loved ones, nowhere. We must make room for suffering in our worldview so that when crisis comes, we don't collapse, but we conquer. 
Well, the last point is one that I'm adding to the chaplain's message, and that is one great way we can prepare is we can walk in worship. We can walk in prayer and we can walk in joy when we're not in the midst of a crisis. Let's look at Job again, chapter uh, 1, verses 13 through 21. This is where Job is praying and interceding for his family after a big feast and all this calamity hits. Now it happened on that day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house that a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding besides them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And what did he do? He fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How many of you would say, in the future, when crisis hits, I want to worship? No matter how hurting I am, no matter how bad the tragedy, I want to be found falling on my face and worshiping the Lord. Along with my grief, I'm not going to ignore grief or not be real, but I want to be found worshiping. Job was also a constant intercessor, wasn't he? We see over in verses 1, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that every time his sons used to go and hold a feast, they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He was a constant intercessor and a priest unto his family. Last week, Jim Garrett said that we are either moving toward a problem, we're in a problem, or we're moving out of a problem. Um, And it seems like that is so true. But the Bible seems to juxtaposition adversity with joy, doesn't it? Um, I'm sure as I'm talking, you might be thinking of some verses about joy and adversity very close together. Uh, Certainly Jim's life respects that reality 
those of you who don't have the privilege of hanging out at the church during the week, um, oftentimes I will hear jazz coming from the uh, conference room, or I will hear the clarinet being played in here, or there will be this booming voice singing a hymn coming out of some recess of the church, and that's Jim expressing worship and joy even though he carries a heavy load. Here are some of the verses about joy and adversity. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. 2 Corinthians 7.4, Paul said to the Corinthians, I am overflowing with joy in all my affliction. And then James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in Galatians 5.22, we're taught to walk and practice the gifts of the Spirit. The first one is love, and the second one is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. We're told to practice these things, to walk in these things, and my thesis is that if we are practiced in them, when crisis hits, we will be able to conquer rather than collapse. Finally, in our text, John 16, the very Lord of Lords, our great King and Master himself says, in this world you will have tribulation. What else do we need to have to make room for theology of suffering than the, the words of the Lord himself? In this world you will have tribulation. But what? Be of good cheer, for I have over." the world. I know that some of you are in crisis right now, and I would like to pray for courage for you, and I know that there are some here who might feel like, I just want to ask the Lord to help me respond appropriately when crisis does come, even though I'm not in crisis right now. So I'd like to pray for both groups. Uh, So perhaps what we could do is, if you would like prayer for either one of those, either you're in crisis right now and you want to pass the test and stay encouraged, or if you would like in preparation to ask the Lord's help when crisis hits, that I can walk and be strong and faithful. I'd like you to stand and um, go ahead and stand up. And then those who are in crisis, I'm going to ask so that members of the body can rally around you and pray. Um, I want you to just raise raise one hand, okay? If If you are in crisis and you want to be prayed for along those lines, would you raise your hand? And I'm going to ask members of the body to gather around these who are who are raising their hands while we offer a brief prayer. Father, thank you for these who are responding to you, not to me, but to you, your Holy Spirit and your word. And so, Father, we just acknowledge that 
this is a sacred moment. And we do pray, Father, for courage. We pray, Father, that these who are standing with their hands raised, who are in crisis, Lord, that you would help them to stand firm, to hold their ground, to not give up, to not fear the war, but to be reaching out to you, Lord, and appropriating courage, appropriating faith, appropriating your grace and your comfort. Father, we, we just ask you, Lord, that we would be a people that's pleasing to you when we are in crisis. And I thank you for the example of my brothers and sisters who are, I see standing here raising their hands. I thank you for their example to me, Lord, of those who are standing under adversity, under attack, under the testing of the Lord, under sickness. Father, I thank you for their desire to bring you glory and honor and praise in the midst of their crisis. Oh God, just pour out your spirit in a powerful way and bring encouragement, bring refreshing, bring the joy of the Lord, bring that Christus Victor spirit, Lord. Bring uh, just the strength and refreshing and joy and good cheer of the Lord. Father, we pray for these who are raising their hands. And now let's pray for those who just um, are not in crisis, those of us who are not in crisis, but we want to pass the test when it comes and we want to be prepared. Father, we pray for ourselves for those of us who are not in crisis, but we know that uh, suffering is part of 